You are listening to the Necropolis Podcast, which is brought to you by Jason from Goatcraft and Shelly from HeatMeditations.com and Metal Lesion Magazine. Welcome to Necropolis. Jason, also known as Lone Goat from Goatcraft. Um, we do have Shelly returning as co-host today. Shelly is from HeatMeditations.com, a Metal Lesion Magazine. And we do want to thank him very much. It's pretty late over in England right now. And he also has a Christmas cold. So I want to thank Shelly a lot for joining today. Yeah. Hello. Yeah, I am feeling rough as assholes. So apologies if I start sneezing and coughing at any point. But yeah, glad to be here. <laughs> and he does have his stereotypical English tea. I do. Yeah, it's doing wonders. <laughs> Cool. So our guest today is the wonderful uh, S. Craig Zoller. Um, he has been on this program before and we had a great chat um, all over the place, but uh, we'll try to keep it a little bit more focused today. So uh, Zoller, he recently released a second graphic novel called Organisms from an Ancient Cosmos. And I picked it up and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It reminded me a lot of like classic science fiction, but more based in like with scientific backing behind it, and especially like even some biological aspects. So I was like, holy crap, he put that in there. Um, so um, really, really awesome book. And I highly recommend it. I wrote a review of it up on hatemeditations.com if you want to check that out. But uh, Zoller, thank you for coming back on the program today. Hey, thank you for having me. And uh, I enjoyed our, our previous chat. You and I have been in touch uh, you know, a few times since then. And uh, I appreciate your kind words regarding graphic novel that was uh you know i i didn't do it because of the pandemic but it actually timed out that i started writing it uh the day the shutdown really i got serious here in new york city which was um kind of kind of mid-march 2020 and so i started uh writing uh the story that uh was was going to be the, the story for the comic on that day, and I actually finished drawing the final page more than a year later when I um, got my first vaccine. So it sort of like really spans um, that that period of time, and 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 is the most the single most time consuming artistic uh, enterprise of my life. And uh, glad to hear you enjoy it, and and the responses thus far have been really strong. I've gotten cool blurbs from famous folks and, and nice reviews, and and I'm happy to see. Uh, that, that it's being well-received and, and certainly reflects my interest in uh, the kind of science fiction that I'm interested in, which is um, hard science fiction and science-based stuff, stuff where you like the, the story is set in motion by different scientific anomalies and discoveries, and uh, that, you know, that, that pushes stuff forward. It isn't just um, you know, robots with lasers and, and spaceships, but actually uh has that sort of sort of sense of wonder um that you know that that most of my favorite stories in, in the genre do so I'm, I'm glad you responded to it uh positively and, and thanks for the review yeah and i noticed the uh the storytelling and it's just phenomenal with all the characters and the backgrounds like and all of your works like the movies uh bone tomahawk brawl and Silver block 99 and dragged across concrete as well as the uh forbidden surgeries of the hideous dr divinus um, you are a master of painting and atmosphere. Uh, I know you go by the nickname Realm Builder. You had a project called that, and, but you really do. And you build the backstories to every facet of you know the story. It's very multifaceted. There's a lot of different nuances that are interwoven together, and it just makes it so much more compelling. 
Um, and I was brushing up a little bit. I watched a couple of uh, interviews you've done on uh, YouTube and, you know, just learning all these different aspects of like your work ethic, like you would spend like 12 hours a day or at night, you know, because you sleep during the day. I learned that about you. Yes. Not very common that people, you know, sleep during the day and then they're up at night working. But uh, it seems to work for you in a phenomenal fashion because a uh, great master of storytelling and just all around, like, you know, a lot of people throw around that term jack of trades, master of none. No, you're quite a master of quite a few aspects of uh, what you delve into, whether it's filmmaking, uh, writing, uh, graphic novels or novels, um, you know, across the board, just very phenomenal what you do and, you know, very privileged. And uh, for our listeners on this podcast, uh, Zoller used to be a writer for Metal Maniacs, he used to write for them. So he is one of us. He is a extreme metal fan. So the second part of this podcast we will be delving into some metal stuff um so uh so like you said um in regard to hard science the um i really don't want to spoil the story too much but yeah that that that's it that's the uh that's the thing i've done a, a couple podcasts and, and youtube things where i've talked about it and i always prefer to say uh you know uh, less uh, rather than more on it, because, you know, I spent so much time uh, building the story and, and all of my writing process has surprised myself daily. So I certainly didn't know where a lot of this was heading when I was writing it. And I uh, and I imagine the reader experience is, is similar. So I am certainly reluctant past a certain point to discuss any any of what's going on in there. But, uh, you know, if, you know, feel free to fire away if you have questions and let me just back up and say thanks for all the compliments that were in that, you know, in, in those couple of paragraphs you threw out, I, I, I threw out, I really appreciate it. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, one of the reasons I felt emboldened enough to do this graphic novel and the previous one is because I'm very confident in my skills as a storyteller. And, um, and it's the kind of thing like when I did my first movie, uh, as, as, as a director, Bone Tomahawk, it was the kind of thing where there are temptations every day, every moment to make things simpler, to drop things and to lose things. And, and I just knew I'm like the purest creative experience was when I was alone in the room writing the script. And so I just tried to deliver what I wrote as, as well as possible. And you know, there's, a, there's the common opinion of there's the movie you write there's the movie you edit and um, there's the movie you write, the movie you shoot and the movie you edit. But for me, that's one and the same. And my movies are extremely accurate to my scripts. And so that helped me with the comics where I'm like, particularly with forbidden searches of the hideous Dr. Davinus. I'm like, okay, I haven't drawn for a long time and I'm certainly below par compared to people who are doing professional comics. But I was confident that the story uh, the dialogue, the characters, the atmosphere, that all of that would be um, at a level that uh, unless someone was just absolutely repelled by the artwork or just couldn't get past it, that the story would be worth telling. And then once I had that experience, which, which was really successful for me, and you know, everyone talked about how, how clean and clear the storytelling was, which for me was the biggest question going in, uh, I was more confident with the second one, which you know, it's, it's a good thing to have when you sit down for, you know, 2,800 hours and 14 months working on a project without really 
sharing it with anyone along the way. You, you want to have confidence that people are going to understand it at, at, at the end and, uh, and I hope enjoy it as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, the main character, Carlton, um, you know, without spoiling it, but he does have some of the Byronic characteristics. Is that kind of like a archetype that's uh, uh, pretty much in all of your works? Because I know in a, uh, Bone Tomahawk and Brawl and Cellblock 99 and Dragged Across Concrete, you know, there are some very flawed characters with dark pasts and, you know, there's obstacles they have to come, you know, to redeeming themselves. Um, so is that always a common thread in your works? I, I mean, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's, I'm looking to, to make um, stuff that's, that's morally interesting. And if you have a bunch of heroic characters who are flawless going through, it's, it's, starts to be kind of uninteresting and um there are characters in in uh in the graphic novel and in organisms uh who are cleaner in terms of their history and there are are ones who have more objectionable stuff going on so uh in in general i you know with in the case with this specific comic i was looking for um a unique journey for him and then uh kenneth yamazaki who i consider kind of the other leading character of it and they both have pretty different paths in terms of um you know what leads them on and it's you know it's also an ensemble piece and and for all the talk of bone tomahawk and uh and the kurt russell aspect of it i wrote it and i always saw it as an ensemble and i think it plays out that way obviously kurt russell is is more famous than the other than the other three uh main main dudes in it but to me, I approach it as an ensemble, and this this was similar. Um, the the journey for Carlton Land and Kenneth Yamazaki is fleshed out more, and um, they're they're you know and, and more uh, indirect uh, than it is for some of the other characters. So I think by default, from that amount of time, they they will they will feel that way. But uh, yeah, I like to I like to explore those those uncomfortable spaces, um, and. Uh, particularly if you're making something big about human achievement, sort of folding into that, all of the flaws and the things that you may have to accept that you don't particularly love um, for human to, for humanity to transcend. To me, it's especially interesting to explore in this context rather than say, you know, the wild West or, you know, modern day streets with the city or the prison. Like this is, you know, this is a really different context for it because, um, the larger concern is actually, you know, not originating with the human race. And then, uh, what does humanity put forth to deal with it and who would come and who would go forth to actually deal with it? So it's yeah, very, it's certainly, very, certainly something I look to do. Yeah. It's very, uh, the aspect of alien, um, like a lot of alien movies and sci-fi that they're actually like beings that we can somewhat relate to, like they're humanoid and all that. This is a different can of worms. It's yeah, and that and that and that for me is something. And this is probably like my mom is in, interested in science fiction. Probably you know, uh, there's there's certainly things that she said to me when I was little that that resonated. And and uh, you know, and something like it, when when she's saying something negative, maybe about like Star Trek or or something like that. It's like you know, these are they're really just kind of people. Like they're not especially alien. So I've written a number of things with aliens and they are uh, you know, like uh, mo- like mostly screenplays that, that just that haven't been made. 
but uh, I'm definitely not thinking of something that uh, it looks like me but has pointy ears or looks like me but has green skin and some ridges. And I enjoy some Star Trek stuff, so this isn't to bash that. I think sometimes that show has genuine science fiction um, premises and cool extrapolations, and, um, and sometimes it isn't that at all. You know, it depends, and then you need to accept things like there's some transporter that can just disassemble people at a at a fundamental particle level and reassemble them at a distance with nothing to receive them. And like, you need to accept some stuff like that that might like that I don't want to put into my science fiction. And if I'm dealing with, uh, say, something like faster than light travel, come up with a novel way to deal with something like that rather than just say warp speed. It's and, really a suspicion um, of disbelief that a lot of people just go along with it. And like Star Trek was like, it's so fantastical and uh, doesn't resemble reality at all. But, you know, they just go along with it as popcorn entertainment, I guess. But yeah, you, you, you're putting the science into the science fiction here. And it's very, very cool stuff. Like uh, that parallel that I drew in that review about uh, Robert Sheckley, specialist, especially, um, um, you know, he, he took it as a, like the, the aspects of the aliens are kind of humanesque or humanish, um, but yours is based really in science, but there's similarity to both those stories that I really love a lot. I've, I've not, I've not read that story. I should, I should probably check it out, but, yeah, I mean, what, it's one of the things like when people talk about, um, say, these UAVs, the, the what is it, the, the unidentified aerial vehicle, they want to move away from UFO, that term. And when people, this is the stuff that was declassified, whatever, like a year, year and a half ago. And, um, you know, I enjoy the X-Files, but I don't believe anyone's ever been abducted by an alien. And to me, it's just sort of the, like coming at it like scientifically, like the idea that these aliens are smart enough to get here, smart enough to like abduct people and be stealthy about it, but to it be counts. caught regularly, but to be caught regularly all the time by truckers in the Midwest and going up <laughs> and down the highway. Why would you travel across the universe just to abduct a cow? Like it makes no sense. Right. So, so there's some of that sort of stuff, like the idea that they're so smart that they can come here and that they're curious about us, but want to remain hidden, but yet they're at the level where they can cross the universe, they can abduct people, but they're getting caught all the time. So to me, that like, and I don't have an explanation for all those UAV things that are, you know, like, well, this is moving at, a, you know, this has been captured by government planes, and they're moving at a speed that it can't, but like, my, my thought is like, if there's, I, I'm, I do believe that there's alien life somewhere but i don't think it's going around on this planet with alien with like anal probes that to me seems like pretty un pretty unlikely that they're basically kind of humanoids that they're they're brilliant enough to get across the galaxy but then clumsy enough to get constantly caught and also that they're all going to be on like this relatively human scale and like it seems you know what tardigrades are no sir you do or don't no sir no Okay, so tardigrades, also called, they have a couple different names. They, like, they're, um, uh, I think one of the names is maybe water bear, and then another name oh, is... Oh, yeah, um, and they can survive in space, right? 
So they can survive in space. And you look at it and it has eight legs, which is pretty uncommon for any kind of creature. And it can also survive long periods of dehydration. And like once it's hydrated, it's not going to live for long. But I think, I think it's far more likely that, that, that something that that or something like that is actually an alien rather than like a little dude with giant, you know, black almond shaped eyes you know, dressed like a wizard and going around and taking people. So again, this is stuff that, that I look at, like, I, like, I think it is very likely that like somewhere in the universe, there is, there is light, but the idea that it's roughly humanoid, it's trying to do all this stuff st- like stealthily, but constantly getting caught out. Uh, it's like, they're going to be able to do like, if they have that technology, they're going to be able to do this or not. They'll also maybe be a microscopic tardigrade size or, or, you know, or the size of the city to think that they're also just on human scale is also kind of limiting. So anyways, all of this is the stuff that I'm thinking when I go in and and create uh, the aliens for organisms from an ancient cosmos and, you know, coming up with coming up with their reasons. But um, it's, it's, there's, there's brilliant science fiction out there, but most of it is most of the stuff that I think is really great. um, With the exception of 2001, which is my favorite movie ever. Most of the great, great science fiction is, is I'm reading it in a book or a short story. Like, that's, that's where it goes. And a lot of times, by the time it becomes a Hollywood movie, it sort of is embracing certain tropes. And a lot, you know, there's a lot of Hollywood science fiction that's technology run amok and kind of anti-technology and sort of anti-science uh, in a way um, that, I, that I don't find that spirit running through say Greg Egan, who I think is the all-time greatest science fiction writer, his, his stuff is absolutely brilliant. And, um, and, the, and the best, like old Arthur C. Clarke, Arthur C. Clarke stuff, like Rendezvous with Rama, Childhood's End, and uh, Ted, Chiang, Ted, Ted Chiang has two short story collections in terms of contemporary stuff that are absolutely brilliant, particularly the second one. So they're really, they're really smart people doing it. Uh, but but much more uh, just stories uh, than uh, you know stories in novels than in um, than in movies. Yeah, when when that UAP stuff started coming out a couple of years ago, you know, there's multiple different you know instruments recording the same objects that are moving you know very very quickly that you know the human body couldn't withstand, and it makes you think like this you know anti gravity device of some sort. But people like everyone always like it's aliens, it's aliens, it's aliens. There, there could be other theories. Um, it could be, you know, it could be time travelers. It could be, you know, the oceans are still, you know, Lovecraft derived all this horror from the unknown aspect of the oceans and all that. Um, it could be, you know, some sea creatures that are more advanced than us. They've just been hiding. Who knows? But everyone always wants to jump to it's aliens, it's aliens, aliens. I think it's more likely uh, there's Bigfoot running around than uh, aliens. Uh, yeah, I, I yes. Well, because, I mean, and that would make sense that there's just some branch of humanity that evolved a different way. Um, I'm not I'm not a, a, a real um, a Sasquatch enthusiast. So I've, I've heard some firsthand stories recounted by people who think they've seen that. Um, well, but I, I think saw that's one. more... What, who saw one? Glenn Benton from Deicide saw one. Oh, well, maybe not the most reliable scientific source, but perhaps. Um, but I, I, um, I mean, it's possible also that he is one. Uh, 
the, yeah, the I have my own theories. Like with, <laughs> yeah, but with, with yeah, with the, with the you know the UAV stuff, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's cool. It's cool to speculate, but uh, you know, there's always there's always something like there there's uh, you know there's this pilot, and I watched him interview. Like I I uh, for the I I watched a ton of that like Lex Friedman his YouTube show. Like that was on a lot while I was writing this and drawing this. It's certainly one of my favorite programs. Recently, he's just getting a lot more celebrities and political speakers, which interests me far, far, far less than all the scientists he had on. But he did have a guy, maybe his name is David Fravor, who is who was piloting a jet and had this like up close encounter with this. And he's talking about how he's trained by the military for this like split second timing for all of the you know, potential, I guess, dogfighting that he would be doing in a jet, you would probably know better than I. Um, but he is this trained, top professional flying some, you know, extremely expensive craft and all this sort of stuff. And he tells this story about this, this giant Tic Tac that he saw that then zooms away, moving, you know, like standing still, moving to incredible speeds um, that, you know, nothing, nothing he could think of moved at. And he's telling this story and it's, you know, it's compelling. And I'm thinking like, so this guy, but there's no video and they have video on those planes. And I'm thinking, so this guy is like the top of the top best trained thinking in fractions of a second to save his life. And nowhere in this process, when he moves his jet to have like an up close interaction with this Tic Tac, he ever thinks to put on the video camera to get it. So unless, unless one believes that though, that, that happened and he's lying about that in terms of recording it and then that and that material remains classified there there tend to be those sort of little loopholes with with that sort of stuff i mean i read the whitley striber um or streber however you say his name communion book and man that uh, there, there were more loopholes than, than sentences in that book like man, none of that none of none of that matched up where it's convincing but I mean, you know, I remain interested in this stuff. And although it just sounds like I'm a gigantic debunker, that's where I'm coming at um, things from a, from a scientific standpoint. And in, in a way, it's, it's also how I write characters for my pieces. And it's a reason that my scripts, my, my finished movies are like my scripts because the actors get it in there and they don't look at it and think like, oh, man, I don't understand why my character is doing this. Why is he going here? Why is she doing this? And all that sort of stuff. Because I've talked through the, the, the motivations, all the stuff, and it drives it so that, like, by the time they're looking at it, it, it makes sense. And, you know, and the same thing with how, how I, you know, how I conceive of an alien race and, and interactions um, with them is just coming from that place of looking at stuff differently. It's certainly not believing in the kind of the pop culture, you know, version of of an alien or a bunch of abduction stories because, because I don't, because I don't believe in those. Did you like Annihilation? The movie Annihilation? Uh, not no, not, not particularly. And I like some stuff that Jeff Vandermeer has written. I thought that that one was kind of, I thought it lost its way in, in terms of just, it, it became very pretty at a certain point, but I, I really wasn't with the characters nor that I feel it had. Um, I mean, I just feel it was kind of like a horror movie with some sci-fi in the background, um, as compared to like Arrival, which is actually based on a Ted Chang story. And to me, that's like in terms of a mainstream movie that is genuine science fiction. Uh, that was they they forced in some some 
um, stuff in there that wasn't in the story that felt like forced Hollywood stuff. But um, that was more to my taste than, than Annihilation. Uh, what, are, are you a fan of Annihilation? No, uh, I, I thought the movie sucked until the ending when it got to the alien creature thing, where it was more like a, a fungus or a virus or what, I don't know how to describe it, but it had right. that otherworldliness that wasn't humanoid at all, even though it did kind of mimic humans. But yeah, I like, I like the ending, but yeah. I don't like the the rest of the movie. I was just wondering what your thoughts yeah. were on that. Yeah, no, I, I I mean I don't I don't remember it that I saw it in the theater and I was like, oh, that was kind of disappointing the way. Uh, the way that went, a lot, a lot of the visuals are strong. There's some strong performers there. And I didn't think it was bad. I was just, you know, not interested in, in, in terms of things like that that have uh, been out there. Um, uh, I think Arrival is is uh, is much better. And I have a screen. I have a screenplay that goes pretty deep in on string theory. And I currently have like in the hands of some people. This isn't for me to direct because I don't want to direct something where I'm going to spend half a year of my life criticizing CG shots. So it'd be something I would hope someone else would direct, but um, Arrival is, I, you know, I, I think that that one is strong. And then also the movie Moon uh, mm-hmm. by Duncan Jones, uh, David Bowie's son. That was great. I saw that, I think, three times in the theater. I, I that, that was good, strong science fiction. Doesn't have alien stuff, but... You said Moon, uh, right? My, yes. I love that one. I love the twist in it. And uh, I actually told uh, Marco Alejo, because he's really into science fiction, to check out Moon. Hopefully he has, because it looks like it has your approval and it has my approval, so just needs that be haired approval. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Go ahead, Shelley. I was, no, I was going to say, I think the best sci-fi often proposes the scientific element as, like, the premise to say, like, if we altered the world in this one specific way how would how would events play out and going back to like the earlier sci-fi from the 50s and 60s you mentioned sort of Arthur C. Clarke um, I'd add Eric Frank Russell and Asimov to that as well and sort of the writers for the analog sci-fi series which work really well as like short stories because they are proposing that that premise and just sort of playing it out for, over the course of like um, a short kind of piece of text um, and some yeah you mentioned Arrival and some of the like that has sometimes translated into films, but often this best sci-fi tre- tends to get a bit more philosophical than that. Um, just to rush in and defend Star Trek as well, they do sometimes toy with that, and especially non-human aliens. But whenever they're using, you know, humanoid aliens with forehead bumps or pointy ears or whatever, it tends to be like almost like an ethical thought experiment where they say they encounter a society oh. that has like some hidden aspect to them that you know they have to figure out how to how to treat them and stuff and i always found that more interesting i was talking specifically about like classic star trek and next generation not necessarily the 2009 film but um but yeah that 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 kind of sci-fi is the stuff that really really chimes with me where they're just toying with the ideas and using the science and using the ideas to to basically play out a little thought experiment and see where it takes them yeah, I mean that, that absolutely. As I said, like I, you know, I I had a criticism for Star Trek, but also that is a really popular thing that had you know some some scientifically compelling episodes. And then when it just gets to more in I guess a fantasy zone of similar cultures, and they have bumps on the head and the ears, or they growl, or they've got a you know a weird knife 
and uh, but otherwise they're seemingly pretty human. Yeah, then you can just get into sort of like anthropological sciences, and there's some interesting stuff that happens there as well. So it's not like even when they embrace that, that it's not in that realm at all. But uh, it's just certainly in terms of how I conceive aliens or think is most likely. I think a tardigrade is a lot more likely than E.T. Um, in terms of, you know, what's what's out there, like something that's really far afield and on a completely different uh, on a completely different scale. But, yeah, those, the, the I mean, all that golden age of science fiction that really started um, with it was like I think it was like Joseph. Was, was it Joseph Campbell was the editor for uh, for that for astound? I think it was Astounding Stories. This pulp and there's like some 1939 issue that has all of these like really important science fiction people. And he started saying like this is going to be a little bit less the Edgar Rice Burroughs, you know, space fantasy where you could it could really just be a western, but but you know swap out the you know the swap out the Indians with, um, you know, people with green, green skin. And they were really these kind of like romance adventure tales. And where he, where he said like, uh, Campbell, I think in the, uh, the astounding stories or astounding science fiction, whichever it was, I think it was one and maybe changed to the other where that was sort of the mandate. Like there needs to be science pushing it forward. And that's what distinguishes, uh, most of the science fiction that I enjoy. And, and, um, you know, and sometimes it's a little bit more backdrop, and I'm, I am a fan of Philip K. Dick, uh, and some of his stuff really has that, and sometimes it's a little bit more, he's just giving you a weird future setting, and then you might have some conspiracy paranoia stuff, and there's tech in there, but it isn't all springing forth so much from the idea of like, well, this new thing has been invented and or discovered, and it has altered society in this way. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, I agree. And because of the philosophical nature of it, um, I think it's less, you see it less in movies. And I believe also because movies, you know, particular, particularly expensive Hollywood movies really want to hand you a moral. If you do something that's legitimately, um, ambiguous on that, like really good science fiction on artificial intelligence won't be. Artificial intelligence is running amok and ruining the world. And um, they're going to be good, you know, like probably both sides of this would be discussed. And then maybe the rights of these things um, at a point at which they're sentient and aware of a lifespan. But it's easier in a movie to say they've run amok and they've gone evil. Let's shut it down, um, which is a little bit, uh, you know, that's a little bit of a thing that was forced into arrival when the story that Arrival is based on by Ted Chang, which is called, I think, The Story of Your Life, uh, is just much better and subtler and just allows more conjecture and moral ambiguity as opposed to, like, kind of spoon-feeding you some stuff. Uh, so that, that's, a, that's a tricky thing with Hollywood entertainment, which typically is showing technical, like technological innovations as bad. And um, though, though a difference... In the Jurassic Park book and the Jurassic Park movie, because the movie, the book really had the viewpoint of this genetic engineering is against nature, and like the the dude who runs the park in the book is I, I and I, I believe I remember this correctly. I mean, I read this thing like thirty years ago, but I believe he is eviscerated by the dinosaurs and not living on for sequels. And it was really this idea of he messed with nature and now must pay. Whereas the yes, movie yes, actually yes. had a little bit more, 
the movie had a little bit more of a science fiction point of view of, well, the landing moment is like, oh, dinosaurs are really more like birds. And now actually in paleontology, birds are just classified as dinosaurs. So when you say the dinosaur died out, you say the non-avian dinosaurs died out because so much overlap in the gene pool is there that they're sort of classified dust. But that was an idea. That was like a legitimate science idea that was put out by Jurassic Park, whereas the book was very much like, this dude is messing with nature and now he must be eviscerated by raptors. Very, you know, like it's a very different attitude actually than, than the movie. And I think actually in one of the few instances where I, the movie, I, I believe, was smarter than the book. Yeah, and it's it's known for being like one of the exceptions that proves the rule, I guess, among sort of big budget Hollywood films in that it did really attempt to bring the very latest cutting edge science as far as dinosaur, dinosaurs were concerned to the film itself, which really kind of, um, yeah, elevated the plot as well. And yeah, you're right, kind of made it a very distinct entity from the uh, from the source material. Yeah, and it's the kind of thing also like, you know, like, like I, I read a, a really good, what's the, I think Steve, Steve Brusate, Brusate, I don't know how to say his name, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. Fantastic uh, pale, paleontology book. And you get the full story, including like the Precambrian stuff. It's great. And, uh, but he, and you see how many people, this guy who wrote this, this like key book on dinosaurs and, and how many people he's visiting and how many of them are into dinosaurs because they grew up with Jurassic Park. So I'm I'm turning fifty this month. So this this guy's uh, you know a generation or so young you know like decade or whatever younger than I am. But you see the impact. And, and while um, lots of people want to make kind of heavy-handed, obvious moral movies that are, are that are pretty much always preaching to the choir in terms of like like benefiting society, I think Jurassic Park had a greater benefit to uh, society, and I mean specifically the scientific community. In most movies that just tell you war is bad, which everyone knows, or bullying is bad, or you should accept people that are different than you are. They're giving you these, like, up-the-middle messages everyone agrees with, and, um, it, you know, in a, in, a, in a general kind of simplified sense, I, I don't know how many people are sort of against uh, America entering World War II. That, 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 doesn't seem, that doesn't seem hugely controversial. But in any case, like, I look at Jurassic Park as this is an entertainment fun summer movie and the actual effects of that movie being out there in the world are, you know, inspiring a whole new generation of people to get into paleontology and advancing that science. The same way Star Trek really inspired like tons of people who are in NASA and, and in the space program will talk about at some point in childhood being in Star Trek. So, um, I, you know, that all, all of that stuff to me is cool and, rather than a movie that lectures you and tells you how to think something that inspires you to have greater interest in something to me is a far, um, is, is, is a, is a far greater achievement. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, are there any metal releases that you believe is like faithful to science fiction or like a hard science or is it all too fantastical like Nocturnus? <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 I did think of, I did think of them right away, but I, I'm not, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a metal, I'm a metalhead since the eighties, you know, I was writing for metal maniacs in, in, in the nineties and doing my own fanzine before that. Uh, the lyrics are not what I'm here for. Sometimes it's gravy on something that's good, but I, and, and I, I say this 
I'm sure there are some really smart science fiction uh, lyrics in some metal uh, out there, and possibly even some in, in, in my in my large personal collection. But I'm not thinking of anything where I was like, oh, the science really, you know, did this. There was a there was something that really had a great science fiction ambiance. Um, and uh, let me let me pull it out. I don't remember the out. It's the it was the last Beads of Flesh album, um, which I remember reviewing them back in the day when they were sort of in a transition from this kind of brutal guttural band, like the gradually melted band, to a tech to a to a more technical direction. And I didn't. And, and back then, I didn't. I didn't like the direction they were going, and I didn't think they were doing it especially well. Maybe Path of the Weakening, I think, was probably the album I reviewed. So nucleus, that's what I thought it was. So this album certainly puts me in that cosmic mindset. It seems to have a little bit of that um, alien sci-fi vibe. Like there's, it reminds me in, in, in some ways of, and I don't know if it's pronounced Oxyplagates, Oxyplagates, or maybe it's not pronounced either of those ways, but they have an album called Sidereal Journey. And that is a sort of a similar thing. Like I really am getting the space journey with it but I can't say that these lyrics are scientifically compelling because it's death metal. And I, and I, and I understand less and, and I understand, uh, you know, probably less than half of what's being said, unless I'm staring at a lyric sheet. First of all, Jason, can I gra- congratulate you on that segue? That was, that was great. <laughs> From <laughs> so, sci-fi to metal. I, I have another seg- segue. So, uh, while I was in England, I, I, let me, hold on. Let me ask you, let me ask, are there, are there for you guys, are there any, metal albums with some sort of scientific edge that really stands out for you? I mean, well, I was you know, they're Marcus. <laughs> well, I was going to say that it's not Voivod and it's not Nocturnus, but it's it's the first three Carcass albums, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, that is, that is a science. If I, You know, I was I actually was looking at, the, I saw Carcass in concert a, a few weeks ago and I was, and I was like, and I was spinning um, I was spinning symphonies. I got that like full dynamic range version on, on cd and it's and it really does does sound better and uh looking at those lyrics i'm like some of these are words i don't know um and and but i wonder are all of these actual words um when i look at the the lyrics for, for on, 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 on on symphony of sickness like i'm not sure that I, perhaps it all is and it's just like you know a, a number of words i don't know but some of these seem a little bit on the made up uh, side of things, but I'm not sure. Maybe every last, uh, if either of you have spent a ton of time with the lyrics on that album, maybe, maybe you could answer. Well, but I, I was looking at it, like some of these seem like words I don't know, but some of this just seems a little bit like like Jabberwocky gobbledygook. They did consult biological textbooks at the time that they were writing, but I did actually chat when I was back at university. I chatted with a friend of mine who was a medical student, and I showed her some carcass lyrics. She said they are all, as far as you could tell, actual words, but the stuff they're doing with them, I like what they're saying is happening in each track. Well, a, it's obviously a lot that's not physically possible, but it doesn't quite make sense. It's like if I took a bunch of German words and attempted to make a sentence out of it, but all the grammar was completely wrong, so it didn't actually make sense. It's like that, the medical equivalent of that is how I could describe it. Yeah, not like maybe a little bit of like you Google trade, like Google Translate to your language, and then and then just some cut and paste. 
Pretty much, yeah. It's, yeah, it's basically like using a Google Translate, but with uh, with medical terminology, yeah. Sure, sure. I saw a picture of Tom Hanks wearing a carcass shirt a few years ago. So maybe maybe you can get, you know, Tom Hanks for a future movie if you're shared love of carcass. <laughs> I, I, that, that, uh, I, you said that wasn't Photoshopped? It's hard for me to imagine he is. Um, actually, very, very recently I was. I, I had I had flipped something his way, and then I heard as as is, as is the usual, um, you know, when I'm sending stuff around to actors, like, "Ooh, this is this is too violent." So I don't think the script is as violent as um, as a, as, a, as a carcass song, um, but uh, you, you never know. In terms of him wearing a shirt, this seems like this would have been a Photoshop thing. It's hard for me to imagine he's listening to Carcass, but I could be wrong. No, no, um, I'm, I'm Lauder Sound 2021, Jeff Walker. Tom Hanks used to play Carcass. That was the headline. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I guess Tom Hanks and Carcass is... A- oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, another 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 thing to, uh, to, to like about uh, the likable Tom Hanks. I think he, um, uh, he, he also does a lot of... I'm, I'm interested in, in World War II stuff, and he has, you know, been very involved with a lot of recordings of veterans before they pass. Uh, and I think both of those miniseries, the Pacific and, and Band of Brothers. So, uh, so good for him. He likes, and he's, uh, and, you know, and he's, he's carrying the torch forward in terms of world war two, uh, uh, memorial stuff and, and preservation. Yeah. So, uh, what was special about the, con- I mean, I know you love carcass and have your list of favorite records up here. Um, did they play like primarily newer stuff? A lot of bands, they'll, they'll only play like a few classics and then play a lot of their new. No, it was, it was, it was a, it was a good set. I mean, it was, so the show that was going around cattle decapitation, who I've seen multiple times and never had any, any for like they could play their instruments. It's just, I just don't, I just don't like the music. Um, so I, I came, I saw some of their sets, but I think I've seen them like three or four times. They just, there's a period is like Nile is going around. They're going to be on it. Morbid Angels going on. They're going to be like they just kept getting thrown on tours here. Very rare. So I've seen them a bunch of times. They're like, if you like their music, they're probably a good live act, but I don't. And I didn't. Uh, so it was this tour that was Cattle Decapitation, uh, Obituary, Carcass, and Amana Marth. And Amana Marth, uh, they have two albums I really enjoy. I like uh, Versus the World. And with Odin at our sides, like it's both of those, metal. I think are completely. It's beer metal. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think. I think both of those are really. They're doing what they set out to do. It's certainly pretty simple, um, but the hooks on those are really strong. And um, and I was curious. I like. I knew their live show was a big thing. I did not know that if they're playing a place that has. So this was the Hammerstein. Maybe it has a different name now. Maybe they're calling it like the Manhattan Ballroom. So this thing was packed. I'm going to throw out and I'm going to make up a number and say it's like 5,000 people. I, you know, I've seen wrestling shows there. I've seen a lot of, I've seen, I saw Dio there. I saw Maiden there in the Blaze Bailey uh, era. I've seen, I've seen Ingve there. I've seen a bunch of different artists there. And, uh, and I, it was a surprise to me that a tour that has obituary and carcass and Amon Amarth, that Amon Amarth is absolutely the main ticket seller and um significantly more popular than than obituary and, and, 
and Carcass. That was a surprise to me, but I'm not really in touch with, like, I don't know with album sales and things like that. Like, is that something that both of you would have known that, like, they're going to be the serious, like, that, that a show is going to have a Monomarth Carcass and Obituary, and it's basically going to be an Amon Amarth show with special guests, which is actually how they had it listed on the ticket. No, no. I think, uh, like, my knowledge of, like, other people being in the metal, I think Obituary might be the most popular band, quote-unquote, um, out of all of those. I know Carcass is insanely popular, but they the Amon or Marth crew, they have, like, all the the Viking aesthetic. So the, there might be people there to see Amon and Marth that aren't really in the metal that much. They're more interested to the, the imagery and the beer. Yeah. I mean, they, and they're doing this like rowing pit thing. That's funny. It's super likable and, and, and good live. So in terms of and, and like, it, you know, in, in terms of that show in particular, uh, the sound was terrible where I was sitting. Like I like to be above the crowd. I'm like, um, you know, a little over five nine, so I'm not a tall dude. And being in a fracas, I certainly don't want to be. I don't want to be anywhere near a mosh pit, but I also don't want to be moving around and jockeying around to try and see the band. Like I'm going to the show to see the band, and uh, so the, the acoustics were terrible uh, where I was, and they might have been better elsewhere, but they were just awful. And so, well, cattle decapitation just wasn't anything for me to really comment on because i don't know the music well it just doesn't appeal to me but obituary came out and they did um it was it was interesting i saw them i was like the first show that i went to um in let's let's say like after more than a year of not going to shows with the pandemic was obituary and they were touring around with uh prong who unfortunately went before them so i had to watch a prong set happen uh, but then I was able to get out of there before Black Label Society started. You didn't, you didn't want to snap your fingers, snap your neck? I didn't want to snap my fingers <laughs> nor my neck. I, I just wanted them to be done. Did Obituary um, play Bullituary of Ice-T? They, 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 did, they did not. But the um, when I saw Obituary on that, on that show, that was kind of what – it was a ton of cause of death. Uh, on that show, which was, I guess, this is 20, 2021, I believe. Uh, and uh, nothing from The World Demise, which is my favorite album of theirs. Um, and There's a picture of me. Chloe. I'm sorry for jumping in. There's a picture of me out there with uh, doing a keg stand with World Demise shirt on. Did I ever send that to you? Yeah, yeah, you did. You did. Yeah, that, yeah. that's the one for me because I think. Like, I know Cause of Death, everyone, like, that's the default. Everyone absolutely loves that one. I think a bunch of those songs sound like he just didn't feel like singing in spots that need singing. There's so many songs where the arrangement just goes to these other parts, and why aren't there vocals there? Because he didn't feel like doing it. But in my understanding, kind of how he works, maybe a little bit in the Aussie way of music happens, and then he just picks the spots where he wants to do it. But I feel that there are, there are like, 12 or more parts on that album where it's just like, oh, there should be singing here, but there's not. It's sort of like Gangland by Iron Maiden. There's like a solo, and then there's like the other four measures for another solo to happen, but there's just nothing happening. So when I, I was listening to that song... Didn't write lyrics for a lot of it. It's just kind of him babbling, which I think might have been a I don't, factor as well. There's no yeah. actual stanzas or anything. 
Sure, and 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 but he could have just growled up something. I just think that there's so Cause of Death I like. I'm not going to bag on that album. I just there's a reason that I think World of Mind is much better because I think the best thing that, Obituary to me has two best elements. One is their overall sound. Like this is a band that was certainly really different than Morbid Angel and Death and Carcass in terms of intricacy. They're like, no, we're the we're the original cavemen. So I think their sound is really good, and then I think Tardy is. Um, live and in the studio, like one of the best uh, death metal vocalists ever. So like World Demise, you're getting tons of his catchy choruses, like, you know, and all that sort of stuff. So when I saw them, and that, that, when I saw them a year plus ago, they did a lot of Cause of Death. They did a lot of slowly rot stuff. And then a couple, like a couple things off of the recent self-titled. And, and that, and I think that was pretty much the set. Oh, and Redneck Stomp off of the, uh, whatever, Frozen... Frozen in Time, or whatever the Frozen obituary album. This time, uh, there was only, like, they played, so they played eight, I think eight songs, maybe seven, so it was a much shorter set, and they played only one song from Cause of Death, and it was Circle of the Tyrants, so they're playing a cover, um, like, doing doing a Celtic Frost song is your only song off of um, your most popular album is a I, an interesting choice. I mean, I wanted to see different stuff, but uh, the choices weren't superb. They did do Don't Care off of World of Mine, so I was like, yes, okay, this time at least I got one song off of my favorite album. They did, and, they did, and I really like Ink and Blood. That's probably my second favorite by them. They did songs off of that, but not the songs I like. So that was, that one was sort of a victim of, um, they just happened, for me, they happened to pick a lot of songs I wasn't that into. Uh, they played a new song that sounded pretty good. I mean, I, I, I pretty much enjoy all their albums. And um, I, I think there's a noticeable lack of greatness, but a, a well of goodness with, uh, with, with their, their releases. Uh, and then Carcass, I saw Carcass once a long time ago. I guess this was, this was the first time, uh, this was right when they got back together. I, this this might have been before... Um, this might have been before uh, Surgical Steel was, was came out. They were touring. They had Michael uh, Amott there, so it was, it was him and Bill Steer. Uh, and they brought out Ken Owen, um, who obviously had suffered a stroke, and he got a standing ovation. That's uh, one of the most emotional things I've ever seen in a metal show. Because um, like, I, believe, I learned I, to play. Sorry to jump what, in. I say? believe I probably saw them on the same tour. Because, yeah, they got Ken Owen out, and he did he did like a – a drum solo for a bit and yeah the crowd were going absolutely mad for it and that was yeah that was very powerful yeah yeah i mean i i, I got you know I, I certainly had tears in my eyes and i could say like um he wasn't the most technically perfect uh death metal drummer and i like back in the metal maniac says before i was actually a writer i wrote in a letter because they were talking about metal drumming and didn't mention him but i think creatively like i'll take a ken Owen over a gene hoagland or an askier mickelson any day this shit is so creative and so thoughtful. You can tell their drum parts written by a songwriter and he wrote songs for the band. And uh, so, and I learned to play death metal drums. I first got my double bass pedal and it was just, and it was playing heartwork. It was, I would play heartwork and then um, embodiment. Those two songs off of the heartwork album. That's like, that was me first learning how to play more extreme uh, drums and like the rock stuff I knew. So I have like, that kind of connection in terms of, although obviously he didn't personally teach me, um, learning to play the instrument by like mimicking his parts and 
listening to it in, in a rehearsal space in Manhattan. So very, very powerful to see them. Uh, but I saw Carcass. I'm like, I don't think I ever need to see them again live. And this is something, you know, I'll, I'll throw out to both of you. And I'm a metalhead, and metal is my favorite kind of music. But Club Rock is, if you go album by album, they're neck and neck. If you go by quantity of amazing albums, no contest, metal wins. And, um, but one of the things that I prefer a little bit more in the rock spectrum than the metal spectrum is the live show insofar as what is the musical point of playing live? Is it just to make an attempt to reproduce the studio album as accurately as possible? That's what a lot of of these bands do um, because they're so, they're so technically challenged to do this material because it's so technically demanding. I mean, certain that, you know, necroticism and, Heartwork and and symphony like that's no joke that stuff, but like I felt like when I saw them that time I was like okay they're delivering this material well as a band Jeff Walker a hundred percent of the songs he's coming up short like his vocals are better in every song probably almost every verse and every chorus is better on the album than live and he I, I my my like Carcass doesn't want my advice but I'll offer it to them anyways. Have someone play bass because it's not, it's not that critical. Have someone play bass. It's not that critical that Jeff Walker plays alive. So Jeff Walker can just focus on delivering the vocals as powerfully and as nuanced and as inflected as they are in the album. I, I don't know, Shelley, if this is your experience, but I just find 100% of the time they're coming up short in the vocal department. Well, yeah, I, I've seen Carcass about six or seven times. And the first time I saw them was, as I mentioned, yeah, probably on the same tour when they just reformed. And yeah, the, that first time I saw them at Damnation Festival in Leeds and it was the most powerful performance because I think they just reformed. They had a point to prove. Um, they were sort of trying to announce to the world that we're back on the scene and they really did kill it. Then the rest, I, I enjoyed them every time. But yeah, it was sort of a, um, I don't want to say colour by numbers, but it was very sort of going through the motions. But I wouldn't say that's a function of being them being a metal band. I would say that's them being an older band going over their old material that everyone knows so well. And you see this a lot with either older death metal bands or bands that have had a long hiatus and then reformed. And at first, everyone gets very excited. I'm going to cite Godflesh here as another example. I was at their first show after they reformed at Hellfest and it was the same thing. It, they only played for about half an hour because the idiots arrived too late. But it was the most powerful half an hour of live music I'd ever seen. Um, and then I've seen them several times after that. And every time it's been sort of diminishing returns because they're just going through, right, we'll do street cleaner, we'll do a few off pure, whatever. And then job's job's done. But you once you've made that impact, you've reformed, you've played to a younger audience that might not have been old enough to see you the first time around, you need to do something new. When I see newer metal bands, not necessarily younger metal bands, but newer metal bands playing material that the audience isn't familiar with, you tend to recapture that that spontaneity and that magic that you would expect from a live performance because they're still still figuring themselves out, still figuring their identity out as musicians, and you kind of see the, the tracks evolve and stuff. But with Carcass, they they are just there to kind of replicate what we already expect of them, you know, play the classics of hard work or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 but I'll go specifically to, you know, this is something like, so this, so this last year, I saw those bands, I saw Merciful Fate, I saw Striper, 
I saw Creator, um, and I saw some. Ra- I saw Kendrick Lamar. Um, I saw the Griselda rap crew. I saw the Beach Boys. I saw Chicago. I saw the Doobie Brothers. So pretty diverse group of live shows that I went to. But the thing I can say with like the Doobie Brothers, and I'm not really that into the Doobie Brothers. Like I enjoy, I enjoy them. Like two of the three lead singers in that band, Michael McDonald, who was in the show that I saw, which is Radio City Music Hall. And, um, oh, shit, I forgot his name. Tom, I think Tom Johnson. Um, both of those guys were able to out-sing studio stuff they did in the 70s. And, and this is one of the reasons I think, like, Obituary is a particularly good live band because Tardy can match and out-sing his performance. Where, to me, Jeff Walker, and again, like, if I have to pick my favorite death metal band ever, it's Carcass. But, I, like, as a live band, there's a reason that when I saw them the one time, and they were hungrier then. It was also cool to have Michael Amen. I was like, I don't know that I never ever need to see them again because I found musically, you know, and this is a thing with like what you know where I'm going to make the distinction between some stuff I've seen with metal and and rock uh, live. Musically, I just feel like I, I feel if you listen to even that that show that you know we both saw on that same first tour, like Jeff Walker's vocals live while he's playing bass, I just think they're they're falling short. 100% of the time of what he did in the studio. And like, I just saw Merciful Fate and I'd heard from everybody that he's like quit smoking and he had his, you know, and he had his breath back and he sounded great. And they did like, he sounded like he, he did in the studio. They did. I mean, that show was with the exception of one new song that show was, you know, like four tracks off of Melissa, uh, maybe five tracks off of Don't Break the Oath, which is certainly my favorite, something off of Nuns Have No Fun. And he's matching it. But like, I guess the, the question is, you know, what are you looking for in a live show? And when I think of my favorite live uh, performances and favorite live bands, sometimes it is just a culmination moment, like seeing Megadeth on the Rust in Peace tour. And those guys came out and they're like, they're doing like an album that I still consider my favorite metal album ever. They're doing stuff that is at the, you know, the top of the heap, like unsurpassed, incredible riffs and stuff like that. But it's not going to be better a lot because as a lot of metal, metal music is so complex, they're trying to replicate it live. Whereas the Doobie Brothers, and again, like Megadeth, good Megadeth kicks the crap out of Doobie Brothers, but the Doobie Brothers live were able to vamp extra sing extra high notes, play better solos, have, have the drummer do more cool stuff with errant splashes and stuff like that. So I guess the question for you, and it's just something I saw this year where I was going back and forth between metal bands, kind of classic rock acts and, and rap bands or, or rap acts. And I was just like, huh, like, yeah, like Merciful Fate albums. These are like, there's no Doobie Brothers album that remotely compares to Don't Break the Oath. Uh, and yet, like seeing uh, King Diamond and Merciful Fate live, like it's very cool because of his presence. But musically, what here is better than it was on the album, or at least, let's say, comparably good but different and distinguished in some way live. And that, and you know, and that's that's a little bit my question, uh, you know, well, that, that I put to the to the to the two of you because I see it with rock. Like when I saw, you know, when when I saw. Uh, uh, Chicago, extended solos, new horn arrangements, um, extra vamping, extra backing vocals, new, you know, like they're, they're giving you something new in metal, I feel, because there's a strictness with the composition style. 
um, in, in, in the metal songs I've written are this way. Like there's a little bit more right or wrong. You're playing the riff correctly. Yeah, um, I mean, if you get a new, you get a new drummer, who's incredible. That really might liven it up. And it was a hope I remember back in the day when Priest was on the Painkiller tour and they got Scott Travis, uh, but he pretty much just played the parts that the, yeah. that that Holland had had written before him, and it was disappointing. So like that was a chance for them to be better. But Priest, I have seen Priest and Halford live when they had been amazing live. He's my favorite metal singer. He's my favorite. He's my favorite singer in the entire rock world, rock or metal or anything. I, I am a, I am a Halford, you know, a huge Halford fan. And they have been incredible live because I've seen him out sing the studio performance. I've seen new ideas. I've seen him just a ton of shrieks over victim of changes that aren't on the album. I've seen him vamp and I've seen Ronnie James Dio do it. I've well, seen Eric yeah. Adams and Manowar do it. I've also seen Halford underperform against the records, but that, that's by the by. Um, I saw Merciful Fate earlier this year as well at, at Bloodstock. And yeah, my experience definitely chimes in that I was bowled over by how good his voice was given, you know, they're an older band, they're older than some of the death metal bands we've been talking about. But yeah, he basically sounded like the record. But again, to, to yeah. go back to your point, um, I wasn't going to Merciful Fate looking for uh, improvisation or elevating anything. I was going because I wanted to see the tracks performed by a live band um, to the best of their ability and to put on a show. And they did exactly that. And yeah. I guess it, it comes, yeah. Well, you mentioned the point around sort of metal's formality of composition, which doesn't leave room for that kind of improvisation stuff. But I think what I do get from live shows not not new bands because they're bands that I'm still familiarizing myself with in terms of their sound, but a band that I'm very familiar with, I would say is just raising the stakes for the music, raising the intensity. To take another example, I um I attended a London Death Fest, the first one um in September this year, first and last one probably. But there were a bunch of black metal bands and death metal bands, but I captured uh Gorgoroff. And I've seen Gorgoroff a number of times, always with a different lineup. But this was one of the best best shows they played because all of the, they played all the tracks from pretty much the first three albums, a um, bit of Destroyer as well. But they played them with an intensity. Oh, cool. Yeah, they played them with an intensity and a drama that just really elevated the whole experience. And you just get almost like a, a ritual or something. And yeah, yep. you can get that from the album if you create the right vibe and stuff. But it's not replicable unless it's in the live setting as far as i'm concerned and that's what you really i know that other genres of music do that when they're when they're performed live it was it is also about like the spontaneity and stuff but there is a, a sort of high drama to a lot of metal shows that really comes comes out when you see it performed live that you just can't get from listening to the record i think yeah i i i think i think that's a, that's a good point that intensity can absolutely be ramped. I mean, I, I you know, I'll, I'll always remember Dave Mustaine coming out in his white button-up T-shirt, like, and and then playing "Take No Prisoners" on that tour. And actually, I remember Marty Freeman busting a string at the end of it. And you know, this is thirty-two years ago or whatever when I saw this. So it is, it was super memorable, and the audience was so hungry for them, like the, the roaring for them to come out. Uh, you know, after they'd finished, and also on Clash of the Titans when they were going around with, uh, you know, Anthrax, who were always annoying live. Uh, anytime I've I've seen them, but I'm just not a fan <laughs> of their music. 
uh, and, uh, and and Slayer when someone lit some like quarter stick of like dynamite when they announced Angel of Death and like a I I, I would still will never know what happened because I just looked around and I saw like 200 people running in different directions. This is in the Miami arena for the Clash of Titans store, which is like Allison Chains, Anthrax, Slayer, and Megadeth. But the hunger for Megadeth to do more after they'd finished and, you know, Mustaine just comes out like, you've been great, we've been Megadeth, and just walks off. Like, that intensity is great. Like, I, the ritual live intensity is, I mean, this is a reason that all of these bands that I like, I make, uh, I make the effort for. But, like, after I've had that experience, I mean, maybe you want it repeatedly. Like, I just wish there was a little bit more taken out of the page of, like, well, you know, this is some, this is some shit we wrote 30 years ago. Let's bring in something. And it doesn't mean like, let's play, um, a dangerous meeting and do it as a reggae song. Like I'm not talking like some like dramatic and irritating reworking. I just, uh, most of my favorite live metal experiences have been because there was a singer so on top of the material, they were able to give you extras or a drummer able to do it because a lot of the guitar stuff is a little bit more um, locked in. It's some of the stuff that I've seen. Like I've seen, and I've seen Morbid Angel with three different lead vocalists. And the last time I saw it, they seemed completely detached. It seemed like four guys not looking at each other. Um, Steve Tucker interacting with the audience. Gray off in his own world, which is usually where he is. The drummer might as well have been in another building. You know, he's playing. <laughs> Uh, and it's not Pete Sandoval. I forgot this guy's name. And he's solid, but like he's playing, you know, a lot of these guys have like a, have a pulse and have a click going in their ear, but there's like not that connectivity. Um, but that, yeah, I mean, that, that rush and that ritual that I think that that is, uh, I agree with you. And I think that that's there and that's why I do it. But uh, you know, in terms of some of these bands, but like when I saw Carcass this time, the, the selection was good. Um, you, it was like, I know Incarnated Solvent Abuse was on there. Um, the Carnal Forge was on there. Heartwork was on there. Uh, they did, off, they did some stuff off of the, off of the new one. Like it was a good, it was a good mix. I, yeah. I, I, I enjoyed it. They did the closer off of the new one, which is one of the best. Um, the sound was terrible. So that's like a, like, you know, not, I can't, I'm not going to hold that against Carcass. Um, that's, that's just the venue, but, um, yeah, they played and they played, uh, I'm trying to remember what other, what other stuff I don't, I, I mean, I, maybe when I saw them, they played a few of symphonies as well, but sometimes they'll touch it. Yeah. And, and this wasn't, yeah. And this wasn't, the, this wasn't a long, a long show. I'm thinking it was mostly necroticism. Um, uh, and then there was like, you know, at some point they just leapt into the end. I forget which, like, I mean, as well as, as much as I love that album, not like the, the names of the tracks haven't stuck with me that well because they are, you know, necroticism just scanning me into Lubrious tracks. Like it's a, it's yeah. a mouthful, but it, it was, it was, a, it was a good selection. Like I was of the, of the bands that I had interest in, their selection was definitely the best. And the Moon of Mars is like, for me, there are only two albums of theirs I really like. And they played one song off of those two albums. So well, just, to, stuff, um, just to answer well, your question sorry, earlier well, about their popularity, is they um, the biggest op- open air festival we have in the UK is Bloodstock for metal, and 
they are a regular headliner there. They will always be top build alongside your Megadeths and and so on. So they are they are a very popular oh, band at least in Europe. Yeah, no, and they and they're and they're they're super personable. Like I like I had a fun time watching them. I didn't know a ton of the songs. I mean, I'd heard of some of the other albums that I don't that I think are just fine. But they're really personable. The main guy is very likable. Like there's a. Right. You know, like like uh, some of these bands you'll see, uh, Testament being some of the worst examples I can I can remember. And again, them open. I didn't want to see Testament. Them opening for bands I wanted to see, but like they, where they're just badgering you, go crazy or you're whippy. They were better in Boston or that sort of stuff. And Monarch is the opposite. They're constantly telling the crowd how great they are. They're, there's like a very positive feedback loop going on between pretty much the Monarch singer. The rest of those guys are just sort of like mute guys with very nice hair doing their stuff. Um, but the singer is definitely very personable and interacting and in a way that seems very genuine. Like I'm like, this I think is also a little bit different from going up there and frowning the whole time or going up there and chastising the crowd because they're not going crazy enough. Like that sort of thing where it's like, you know, you guys are great, you love coming here. Like there's a lot more of that sort of thing than I typically see with like a, with a, with a metal band, I was like, oh, it's, it's this is injured. Like, this, this might be part of the reason that their live shows have the success that they do. In addition to all of the props, like they had giant statues, and you know, the drum kit was on some giant uh, like Viking helmet with like flaming eyes. Like, I was really astonished with the like how much money went into their stage set. I, I, I'm hard pressed to think of a metal band that I've seen that has been that elaborate. Um, so they I mean, clearly are they're clearly having success with it. Maybe that's sort of the putting on a show aspect is either, yeah, you go the amount of math route and like really hype up the theatrics, or maybe it is more of like a, a young person's game. So you like your morbid angels, your carcasses, your obituaries. I know that you, you've mentioned a bunch of non-metal bands that are far older than them, but these death metal bands, they know that the crowd are coming there for pretty much one thing, which is to just hear the classics and then maybe you know maybe give a nod to the new album because i know that you know people will lap it up but i think they know that we're we're there to get the carcass experience so we want to hear the classics of heartwork and necroticism and so on and they are basically delivering that to us and maybe they, they are just getting bored of it but they know that you know well a it's obviously an income a source of income for them but also it you know, it gives the fans what they want. Whereas if you get a younger artist, maybe bringing something new to the table, maybe leaving a bit of room in there for some kind of, you know, live play out of some improvisation or doing something a little bit different. And as you said, yeah, it doesn't need to be ridiculous. It doesn't need to be going into, yeah, reggae or a, a dubstep breakdown, but it could be, right. yeah, something just a little bit off the wall that maybe your carcasses and morbid angels are just not, they're not in the game for that anymore. They're just you know delivering to the fans what the fans expect not really for morbid yeah. Angel anymore because uh last couple of doors i believe they've only been doing the tucker era uh morbid angel songs so none of the classics quote unquote um everything formulas and classics later. if you're a fan of tucker though some people dig his era <laughs> I, I i i i certainly do you're talking you're talking like for me um yeah i mean i i, I think i think gateways to annihilation is uh, I think that's my second favorite Morbid Angel album. I think that thing is terrific. Um, yeah. so, Your favorite is uh, Domination, right? 
my fa- my favorite is Domination, which, oh, which which people were shitting on back in the day and, and probably to this day. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the downward trajectory. Started with that album, <laughs> and like even Trey said, it was too sterile and all that. And Dave Vincent described the the lyrics right there in the recording studio before he had to sing them out. So uh, yeah, I I feel that uh, Morbid Angel's best the first four albums, which is Abominations, Altars, Bless, and the Covenant, and then Formulas was a good return to form, I believe. But uh, Gateways was a little too polished for my. I got into it when it first came out because I was, you know, hungry for you know Morbid Angel, and I liked it for like a couple of years, but it just didn't really stay with me. Um, not like the the quote unquote classics, but yeah, um, I, I I saw your list of favorite albums, and there's good stuff on there, no doubt. But there's stuff that you know individuals have their own tastes and quirks and all that. Sure. Uh, um, like the Luciferion, you, you have the apostate as 22 on there. And I, I think the, the, what was it? Uh, the first one, it was a demonication or something like that. The manifest, I felt that one was the stronger album. So I see how our taste in metal kind of, uh, maybe, you know, we're both into extreme metal. I mean, I like the apostate, but I, I would rank the first album a little bit higher because it was like a synthesis of morbid angel and deicide. But uh, the apostate, you know, they they kind of went crazy with the keyboards and long-winded songs and all that. So was that the aspect that you liked about uh, the apostate more than the first one? Well, so so in terms in terms of Luciferion, there's a reason that that's on that list and that I ever think of it, and it's because my favorite power metal album ever by like a continent is is the second Lost Horizon album and my uh, my, my second favorite power metal album ever. By a by a giant leap is the first Lost Horizon album. So this is that guy. This is like that Luciferian thing is is it like maybe Vodsek Lisitsky? So that's his death metal band. And so that second, the Apostate, really has that keyboard. It has you know, or as he called it. And are you familiar with Lost Horizon or no? I, I've heard it, but it's been quite a few years. I'm not really big in power metal, but yeah, I remember there being really good riffs in it. Yeah, I mean it's 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 incredible stuff. Like I don't listen to tons and tons of power metal, but like my holy trinity is those two albums and Blind Guardians, uh, Imaginations from the other side. Like that's it's an easy question for me. Like what are the best power metal albums? It's those three. So the Apostate has that, and as and as as uh, Votsek said on the uh, Lost Horizon album, not keyboards, my friend, soul healing euphoria generators. So yes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that That's Luciferian hilarious. album, that Luciferian album has a lot of soul healing euphoria generators that to me work actually exactly as he's describing with that uh, <laughs> grandiloquent title. And uh, yeah, it, it's just glorious stuff. But I, I like the other one. But that that thing is uh, that thing is monstrous and, and special. But to uh, to get a little bit more specific on the Mormon Angel thing, and I know, I mean, like. Like like decades like decades later, people still like you know domination sucks, and um, some some of my affinity. I mean, I think it's great. So don't, like, there's no there's no disseminating on that. I think I think that's their best album. But I do go back and forth between that one and Gateways. Um, and some is is this, and you I know you like you you have like a classical piano background. Um, Hello. Zoller? Yeah, sorry. 
Yeah, yeah. I thought uh, this is this is this is a question for you, Jason. You have like a classical piano background, right? Uh, sort of. Um, yeah, I, I've done a couple of concerts, and I, I have a, a necroclassical project too. So um, there's oh, that. Cool. So, it, it's just in terms of in terms of some stuff, like I like. Blessed are the blessed are the sick, which um, I mean that's the first Morbid Angel album I owned, and it got me into the band. Uh, but yeah, I mean obviously the, the trigger drums, and I think the sound of it isn't very good. Uh, but you get something like Fall from Grace when it goes into the blast beat. I just feel like that's a it's just drums happening at a speed, but it could have been recorded in another room at another time at another tempo. Like it does, there's like a lack of some of that stuff hooking up that bugs me on that album where the blast beats just seem like he's going as fast as he can, but it's not actually the tempo of the music that's happening. So I feel that there's a bit of a disconnect there. Um, and, and, and David Vincent's still kind of trying to find his voice. Um, I think in terms of some of the singing, so you get things like, come on, ancient ones, Tiamat, Cthulhu. He was was mimicking Browning with that because that's all Browning sang on Abomination. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. I haven't listened to Abomination nearly as much as you have. Like, I've listened to it a few times. But I like Blessed, Blessed Are the Sick. Um, but, you know, a lot of this is just going to come down to, like, um, consistency. I like the alter sound uh, definitely much more. Uh, but some, some of the songs on that album, when it's just full-on blazing speed, and this is my third favorite album, so I like most of it. But something like Suffocation, uh, Damnation... Uh, visions from the dark side, like some of that stuff. It's like okay, it's aggressive, but not the kind of bewildering, otherworldly love, crafty, and creativity that I want from the band. And in that regard, like the album that is an H.P. Lovecraft experience, I think is Gateways to Annihilation. Hmm. Like that album is predominantly mid-paced and slow, and I feel like the chasms breaking open on that album, and I see the otherworldly gulfs. And I like every song on that album. So what to me, the- that album is. That, that the, album, I just think, is incredibly consistent. Weren't the lyrics like the Kabbalah, um, not Lovecraft, on that one? I don't know. Um, I, I like I've, I've read along with it at some point. I didn't recognize, but I didn't recognize what it was. But it, like, I'm just talking in terms of a feel. Like, I don't like it. It, it certainly could could be could be that. Um, but so that album to me has like, I mean, there's just there's just really really great stuff there, and then Domination which everyone shit on, partly because of where the slime live, on uh, the evil laugh on that. I like the vocal variety on that album. And I hate work. Yeah, I mean, I think, that, I think that stuff is interesting. I think the eyes to see, ears to hear, that like really fast 6-8 Eric Rattan riffing is cool. I like the where the slime live stuff. I like Dominate in terms of a straightforward song. Dawn of the Angry, I think, is all-time great. Morbid Angel. Uh, hate work is hate work is really good. Like God of Emptiness, that like giant kind of landscape, uh, blasted landscape, you know, kind of slower, more um, death doom sort of sort of experience. And like the way the synthesizers work and all that, I think is great. So that album has a lot of variety. I think uh, a lot of its bad rap comes from the where the slime lives. But in terms of production. Man, I think it's significantly better produced in terms of the sound and engineering than Blessed Are the Sick. I mean, the, the, like it's locked in in terms of production, in terms of coaching performance, and in terms of sound. 
Um, I think the drum, you know, the drums sound much better on this one than they do on 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 Blessed. I'll give you uh, that. Covenant. I'll give you that. Um, and I, I think uh, yeah. have you heard Entangled in Chaos, where they played the Blessed Six songs? I feel that even, I, I don't like the trigger drums um, because they're kind of overbearing in that recording. But uh, I feel like the the riffs are much meatier um, on that live album, um, texturally speaking, than they are on the Blessed Are Sick. Uh, just a, a few songs off of that um, on Entangled in Chaos. I felt like you know it's way better sounding, you know, texturally speaking, on Entangled in Chaos. So I'll, I'll give you that um, that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I should. I have that live album. I haven't spun it in forever. I, I probably partly because I was like, "Oh man, they're doing like nothing off of domination here," which to me is obviously just dis- that. Like maybe there's like one song. Maybe they do dominate. Yeah, they do dominate on that. So one. They don't, yeah, but not much else. Like all these other, all these other ones that I'm talking about, they're, they're not. They're not touching those. Uh, and then um, Covenant, you mentioned, is one that you also think is better. And I, I dig. I, you know, I like all of these albums, with the exception of that. Terrible industrial thing, the illude, even whatever that thing is called. That 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 I, I I can't imagine even even Trey likes at this point. The Rob Zombie, with the exception of yeah, with the exception of that album, I like all the Morbid Angel albums. And uh, but like pulling it out, like Rapture, I think is good. Pain Divine, I think is okay. World of Shit, I think is okay. Vengeance, I think is okay. World of Shit is phenomenal. I love the riffs in World of Shit. I I feel like the first three songs of Covenant, like if that was just released as an EP, that would be like one of the best EPs in all history. Um, Because the first three songs, they they flow so smoothly together. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I... yeah, no, I was going to say, like, if you think that, then it completely makes sense that you would you rank this really highly. For me, like, I love Rapture, uh, and then the re- the next three happen, and I'm not really into them. And then Lion's Den, for me, is the gigantic step up. That ending when they go into that 6-8, where they keep at the... the drum fill. And then he kind of switches to kind of pulsing the 6-8 in a weird way. And they keep extending it, and it's this kind of elastic riff. And I, I don't know if David Vincent wrote that riff. I know he, he wrote some of that song. That thing I love. So for me, it's that. I mean, that's why that's why Covenant. I'm rating way below some of these. It's two, three, four. I could take or leave. Lions Den. I think is great. Blood on my hands is pretty good. Angel of Disease. The ending of that to me is way too jokey. That like the this um, is the most upbeat uh, song in Death Metal. <laughs> Yeah, that back and forth when it's like and it's just doing this like seesawing back and forth between the like the doomy, slow, awesome orbit angel riff and this really happy kind of pump thrash riff. So that that like I think overall it's a pretty good song, but that ending to me feels like 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 uh humor. Like that feels like something like Zappa or somebody like that would do. Like that back and forth between that. So that's a ding on that. Sworn to Black is great. God of Emptiness is great. So, but like, these are the reasons like that I rate the one way that I do. Some has to do with some of these albums that people love top to bottom or whatever. There's some songs on them that I, that I just don't care for. But it's like, I like all of these albums. That, you know, I like Morbid Angel has a, has a, has a completely solid catalog other than that one uh, industrial, industrial thing. And, and, you know, I like the the most recent, the most recent one less than the the, the best one, but I still dig it. 
What do you sure, think I would King say just just to cap that off? I do agree. Domination gets a bad rep. Although I'm, I'm I will defend Blessed till I die. I would say Heretic is worse than Domination, though, in my book. Yeah, here I think it's a, bit, it's a bit clumsy and a bit unfocused and a bit kind of just made of made of spare parts. Yeah, the heretic is, heretic is a mess. And the thing with the thing with heretic um, that for me is is troubling is someone who like like a lot of people talk about oh it's an album with no skips or this or that like the albums where I need to skip a lot of songs are albums I don't put on like I put on albums to listen from the beginning to the end. And if an album has a lot of tracks I don't like. It's something I'm rarely pulling out uh, because I just like that. I feel that that is the that's the piece. That's the artistic piece is the album. And um, Heretic, there are some good tracks on there. I've spent not much time on it. And I interviewed Train for that album back in the Metal Maniacs day. And that certainly amongst the worst of the interviews I ever did. And um, he spaced out? I've heard some older interviews that he did back in the 90s, like mid 90s and all that. And he seemed like really in his own world and spaced out and not consciously here in reality. Was he like that? I Well, so it was an internet one. So I sent him questions and I like, I'll completely take blame here. Um, I should not have been doing interviews. Like I started with Iron Maiden and I'm like my first interview I'm ever doing with anyone. I'm arguing with Bruce Dickinson. I have, it's probably obvious at this point and from every interview I've ever done, I have a ton of opinions this kind of stuff that I'm saying about the Morbid Angel album, these aren't helpful for a good interview when you're having, when you're putting those in your questions to the artist, talking about how the drums are too triggered or things are out of sync or whatever. Like it's stupid. Like, and, and I think it was sometime around then, like, like the, the Morbid Angel interview. And then I did one with Priest and I sat down with those guys and that was better. But I, I was like, ah, I don't think I'm cut out for the interview side of it because I'm just, interjecting my opinions way 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 too much and i should be writing you know like in terms of metal stuff i should just be writing reviews and talking about the album and what i like and what i don't rather than like sort of pushing it into an interview um and 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 trying to skew it because like you know like like when bruce dickinson tells me that 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 skunk works is a metal album and i tell him it's not like this isn't this isn't like conducive to a good interview like the straight up refutation of like the quality or genre of his work. And, and so with, with Trey, I was talking some about the trigger drums. And at some point I, in the interview, I asked him, what's your favorite HP Lovecraft story? Like seemingly the attic tote last name is taken from his stories. He's like, I've never read any HP Lovecraft in my life, which seems oh. very hard, which seems very hard to believe. Um, but I think I think he was probably just annoyed with the questions. Um, I think someone posted this interview online like this is bizarre. Uh, but it wasn't. And I said this in the introduction, like I, I, I it was me sort of learning, like I, I have too many opinions um, with with some of this stuff to do. And unless it's just a band where I absolutely like love all the creative choices they're making. And Morbid Angel is one of my favorite death metal bands. But I think if the drums were more locked in. Uh, particularly on the first three albums, uh, I would like it more. Like the blasting for me, a lot of times just seems like a guy going fast, but not connected to the the innate tempo of it. Like Fall from Grace in particular. Um, but uh, yeah, so that that was a that was an awkward interview. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's that Heretic album. 
there's all of the stuff where there's like giant gaps of silence and then a guitar solo or a hidden track, but none of that stuff was ever called like bonus tracks. So I don't, I always feel like, I guess I have to listen to this stuff if I'm listening to this whole album. And it's so discouraging because I've never seen, if, if that stuff was all listed as bonus tracks, I would listen to that album more because I wouldn't feel compelled to listen to silence and then a random guitar solo and then silence and yeah. some instrumental version of a song. Like, well, yeah, it felt like, it yeah. felt like they needed to condense the metal album and just release that. And then maybe just make a dungeon synth side project or something. <laughs> Cause yeah, some of it is, and I'm, I'm the same. I have to listen to an album all the way through. I don't, I don't skip tracks either. So when I'm doing that, I, yeah, I do sit for it all. But even then, it, yeah, just the metal tracks—they're—they're they're okay. They're just—they're not—they're not up to standard, and they feel a bit phoned in at times. Um, some of the riffs kind of feel like a band trying to imitate Morbid Angel rather than the genuine article. But yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. they were trying to go for some like numerology thing with all those blank tracks and all of that, and it just became like way too abstract and disconnected from the album. So yeah. Um, Heretic, that was one of those things. So I was still pretty young when that came out, and I got it super pumped. And I, I, I convinced myself that I liked it. That's never good. So I loved the band so much. Like I'm going to force myself to like this. And yeah, that just listened to it. You know, a couple of weeks and never listened to it again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is and this is one of these things. Like also when it's when it's complex music. I mean, I know an album that I wrote a lot of amazing stuff about, but I'd heard it once. And I didn't have I didn't have a you know a good assessment. Like when Emperor announced they were breaking up, um, I was a journalist flown from the U.S. to interview them, and then and I was flown with Chris Bruni from Canada, who now runs Profound Lore Records, and we went out there and uh, and interviewed them, and uh, I you know hearing that Prometheus album once blasted in the studio on those fantastic speakers like i thought this thing was great you know like this is going to be amazing um i know this is going to land and that album and i and i uh and i love the first three i mean i think anthem's to the welcome of dust i think i could prove in a court of law or in a science lab that that is the best black metal album ever made and that ever will be made i i adore that album to death and i love in the night side eclipse and i love non equilibrium and i like a ton of their demos like i'm a huge fan of that band and, um, uh, and so I heard this music and it's like, this shit sounds incredible. It's clearly more progressive. You got more kind of King Diamond and Seven Son of a Seven Son happening here. I'm going to love it. And it's just never gelled. And I don't think it's a bad album, but I never have felt it has gelled as an album the way the other three and the demos have. And so that's like you talk about like that first opinion and you convince yourself to like something. In this case, I was just overwhelmed by the quantity of interesting ideas. But it's like many, you know, like like decades later, it still feels like a a collection of um, a collection of really interesting ideas. I, yeah. I don't know what what your thoughts are on that. He's um, discovering himself as a as a solo artist, I think, because you listen to his solo work, and it really is the follow up to Prometheus, and it was him trying to move away from the sort of black metal but still a little bit progressive thing that you got on nine equilibrium and you know even some elements of anthems as well but i think prometheus is where he really started to move in and no we are now a sort of progressive extreme metal band but we still have 
the elements of Emperor and was still releasing under the Emperor name. But I think I consider that to be his first solo album, if nothing else. Yeah. Uh, Shelly and I, we saw Emperor in London this or last year in 2022. And uh, they actually opened with a song from Prometheus and live. It didn't sound bad at all. Um, Cause I'm not really which, a big fan of that song? album. What? In the wordless chamber. Yeah. In the wordless chamber. That's the best song on the album. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I wonder if he knew which one which one glued and it and it does. I remember when I was talking to him, he's he's a super nice guy and, and obviously a really smart guy. Um, and we, that was and it was over a period of days where I was like hanging out with the emperor guys, taking pictures and interviewing them. And that was a because I you know at that point they they made you know some you know my favorite music of all time. That was a better interview situation than some of these other ones where I came a little bit more challenging, but I remember, you know, I was like, oh man, Elegy of Icarus, that thing is absolutely incredible. It's like, oh, that's always been my favorite song on that album and no one ever talks about it. So I got on his good side sort of early on when we were, when we were talking about that sort of stuff. And he's very candid about uh, the process of recording and all of that stuff and how many amps they blew out recording um, Prometheus. Cause those are like, he's getting good guitar tones. That's not a bunch of like direct interface stuff. That's a lot of super loud amps. And you know, maybe too sterile and maybe too clean, but it's you know, it's 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 a rich it's a rich uh, tone. How was the Emperor show? I'm curious to hear about that because I saw them back in the day. They were kind of sloppy mess live, and then I heard some recording of that maybe Inferno Fest or something in like 2009. Or kind of like, oh, they reunited and they are they are much much better live than when I saw them. On uh, I guess they were supporting. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was a it was a non-equilibrium tour, and they they were. Um, it was it was uh, it was muddled. The sound wasn't good, but they they weren't that together as a, as a live band. And I saw him once later; it's a little bit better. But how are they now? That was phenomenal. I thought yeah. it was phenomenal. So I saw them on the twentieth anniversary of In the Nightside Eclipse um, at Hellfest, and it was incredible because they played the whole album through. Uh, but they were playing with Faust, um, and obviously, you know, he's he's still a very competent drummer. But there was a sense of sort of trying to fit the band back together because they'd not played consistently for a long time. And then I saw them again at Brutal Assault for the twentieth anniversary of Anthems, and musically, it was a much tighter show. And again, it was it was a very special experience because both albums are, are very formative to my sort of black metal listening career. But yeah, when we saw them, we saw them back in May at Incineration Fest in London, and that was like a mixed show. Um, so they had both Faust and Trim do different songs. Um, they played stuff, well, as Jason said, they opened within the Wordless Chamber, but they played stuff from Equilibrium, they played stuff from Anthem um, Nightside, and they even went all the way back to Wrath of the Tyrant as well. So you got like... Oh, cool. Yeah, you got the full breadth of the Emperor catalogue, but also they were tight as fuck. It was a really, really good show, both like musically and... Just yeah, emotionally as well. One of the best shows I've seen. Period. How how are like you know in terms of like so Trim, um, and uh, so he he was a bit on the wild side in terms of his playing back in the day. So it's because like you know, and I asked this is something I asked Nishan about you know back then because like. To me, clearly, like, you know, like, these are drummers playing far beyond the level I could play, but I can hear the difference. Like, like, um, Faust is really, like, locked into the beat in a, in a, in a, at a, at a different level than Trim. 
Jackson was wilder and could probably play faster. Um, but that was also, like I'm talking you know, uh, almost like 20 years ago in terms of the last time I heard Trim play something. And, and obviously, these are people who are pushing towards the edge of human achievement in terms of drums. Did you get a sense, was one or the other better? Were they both excellent? Were they playing? My guess is they're both playing with a click. The stuff that I heard... I, I would assume um, so. I yes. um, I, yeah, I would have thought so because they had they had a backing track, and obviously they got to be locked in with like the the keyboards or sorry the euphoric device. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, so I th- I think the trim like you you can hear it all the way back on the last enslaved album he played on Frost where he's just overpowering the music with unnecessarily complex drums for what was essentially sort of Viking black metal, and he was trying to go in more of a jazz direction at that point. And that comes through on the Emperor albums that he played on. But obviously, much older musician now, he he is, as you mentioned, like locked in with the sound much more, and he fits exactly what the Emperor sound needs. And Faust, ditto, like he's playing the tracks from his era, and yeah, he's sort of exemplifying that. And they're both they're both basically doing the best versions of their styles. Where Faust is, you know, he's still very technically competent, but he's doing the old school, like kind of a deliberately sloppy black metal style quite simple but still really kind of powerful and primal and trim doing the really tight you know lightning fast blast beats and you know really tight fills and complex um patterns that he's doing but he's not overshining the other musicians he's playing with them not not against them cool yeah i mean that this sounds like a show that i would i'd be interested to see because there's you know, there's some there's some swirling around on those albums with him, and there's a lot of great playing, and I'm I'm a I'm a fan of his work. Uh, but you know, there are definitely times where it seems like he's sort of pushing out and then you know locking back in. Uh, um, and uh, uh, you know, Faust is just sort of more locked in. There's no, I, like I didn't know that he had played anything with them at all. There's not a a backlash in terms of his let, let's, let's say highly questionable history in terms of him being at these events and playing everyone is everyone is just sort of cool with it like he did his time and yeah, now he's well, back in the band no there was there was a backlash um especially because he basically he didn't issue a, a public apology but the attitude of the other members of the band and himself was kind of he served his time according to norwegian law so as far as we're concerned the matter is closed and if you have a problem with that then we're okay with you not coming to our shows or not being into black metal. These are Isan's words, not mine. Um, okay. That's, yeah, that's basically their attitude to it. And, you know, there's some people that will probably never ever pay for a ticket again. And that's that's fair enough. That's their decision. But yeah, yeah. I, I guess everyone just has to take a stand where they where they want on that issue. Okay. Yeah, I'm like, seem like I, I, when I, I remember when I asked him about the question he wanted to be diplomatic because he didn't want to say Bart is, you know, that Faust is a, is a, is a tighter drummer and is more on beat, which to me, by my ears, is the case. Um, but it was something, you know, this is this is whenever Prometheus came out, so this is still like uh, like a, a, around twenty years ago. Yeah, that, that you know when I was out there, and uh, and it was something. I mean, I guess he was still in jail, so that was uh, like uh, not something that people talked about at length, but. Um, certainly, I'm surprised to hear that they're that they are doing that. But I, I, you know, I'd be curious to hear what 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 it all sounds like. And I, you know, like my hope would be because I've never really gotten into the Isan solo album. Uh, there's good, I think there's good material throughout, 
But uh, I would be interested to, to hear him do something, you know, to go back and with all the Emperor reunion stuff that he's had, like, does he just not have any interest in making a new Emperor album? Or would it just be more of the same? Would it be more like, you know, like, like you, you said, and I, agree with, and I agree with you, that that last Emperor album sounds like a Nissan album. It, it, 100% you're correct. Um, I don't know if he feels he has any inspiration to write something more in the style of, you know, anthems and, and in the nightside eclipse. So that's just a thing of the past for him. Well, it's interesting you say that because um, his latest EP um, did actually sort of take things back to what was kind of a black metal, recognizably black metal direction. I wouldn't say it's, you know, back to his very early roots, but it's definitely much more in that direction. Whereas some of his other solo work is, I wouldn't even describe it as metal, to be honest. He's sort of gone in sort of a very kind of weird prog rock direction, which I know isn't for everybody. Yep. Uh, I, 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 I think there's stuff of value in there. I don't like all of it, but yeah. But yeah, I don't think there for sure. Yeah, I don't think a new Emperor album would be the order of the day because it would be similar to some of the death metal bands we've been talking about in that they're playing live and they're doing these anniversary shows. And a lot of it is for maybe fans that weren't there the first time around or want to see them, as you mentioned, like they weren't that tight back in the day, but now they are accomplished musicians, all of them, and they are, they're all used to playing with each other again. So there's value to that. But I think if they were to make a new Emperor album, they just wouldn't mesh because Samoth clearly isn't very interested in going in the hyper-progressive direction. Iceton clearly isn't that interested in moving too far back towards black metal. And Trim, I don't really know. I don't know if he's still sort of trying to push the jazz thing or he's happy just going with the flow, but it doesn't feel like it would be called for. I think we'd get more value out of them all just pursuing their own their own musical goals separately. Um, Same I mean, this uh, Zyklon, that was like death metal. So yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. I mean, my comments might not age well if they immediately announce a new album later this year. Sure. But, well, I mean, this is, we're, 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 spe we're speculating. And, and like, to me, kind of exactly what you said is exactly why I would like to see an Emperor album, because I think like Samus stuff posed, I mean, that first Zyklon album has a couple of interesting, um, a couple of interesting things. There's some good music on there, and then the rest sort of lost me. And the other, like, thrashing he did, I checked out a tune, it just wasn't for me. Uh, and then the Isan solo stuff, there's always good music to be found on there, but I don't love his kind of, like, in a way, the black metal screen thing for him has become, I feel it's almost like a, um, a dramatic presentation of that style of singing, where it feels kind of like Rass whisper, like it doesn't it doesn't feel very authentic to me. It feels like here's just the style he's singing in. So I sort of wish he would just like embrace just clean singing all the way. Or if you're going to do the extreme vocals, have them actually be more extreme. Um, so he's in this middle ground where it seems like this is the accepted style of what he does and probably something he can reproduce live and do consistency, but it lacks the ferocity and the creepiness and of, of the earlier of his early screaming stuff like you know through anthems and some on the uh nine equilibrium and it and it's like and it isn't like he has a good singing voice so i like i like if Isan became something like his solo career became something where he's just doing all clean singing and maybe one of i don't know all the album maybe he did this once but i'd, I'd be a little bit more interested in hearing that but the idea of with sam off and Isan like really 
having like diametrically opposed philosophies in terms of what they're doing, those two having to collaborate, I'll be interested in seeing the fireworks that come out for, for exactly the reasons as you said. Like like if if a Samoff makes Isan go more barbarian and then Isan makes uh Samoff think a little bit more, I think that could be an interesting combination. But again, who who knows? Like uh well, it, it could it could be more of the same, but like that sort of conflict uh, it's interesting. I mean, you listen, like, you know, you get the back and forth on, I, I got really, I got really pretty deep in the beach boys this year. Um, and it's like, yeah, you're hearing this, like the Mike love fronted surfer stuff. And then this ultra weird, sad Brian Wilson trying to be happy, you know, like Baroque melancholy. And there's something interesting when you have some of that back and forth. And a lot of my favorite bands have these vying personalities in there. Whereas, like, obviously, the Isan solo stuff that has all kind of lost me, though, yet remained kind of interesting. I think that's like, you know, like there's he's just running loose in the, in, in the Prague uh, metal world. And it's and it is uh, he's certainly coming up with a lot of interesting stuff, but he's just making music uh, that overall appeals to me the way the Emperor stuff did. Yeah. Okay. Ever heard one Ishan song ever. <laughs> <laughs> You might not mind his first album, but I think the rest of it wouldn't necessarily appeal to you. I just did just off the yeah, off the top of my head. But yeah, I think the result of that pr- prospective new Emperor album, it would either be an absolute triumph of, as you said, that duality of them sort of complementing each other's like opposite uh, impulses, or it would be an absolute disaster. But Either way, I don't think you'd ever get an average album out of it. So I'd love to see the results. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's really, and there's also a little bit, you know, and I've seen this a couple like veteran artists doing this. The OJs, I'm obviously a huge soul fan. Like those guys, after sort of being being in the wild and not really recording albums, you know, really so much since the the the, the 70s and 80s. Like those guys getting back together and doing an album, the final the final word. It's this amazing classic, you know, Philly soul group landing with an album that I think ranks amongst their best is really cool because I've never spoken to anyone uh, who's an Emperor fan who doesn't think that um, uh, that Prometheus is a, is a dramatic step down. I mean, I have spoken to people who think that Nine Equilibrium and Prometheus are both step downs, um, but I, I like I don't know. That that is not ending strong in terms of the legacy. And so they've they've redeemed themselves, certainly. And it could be just monetarily, but they've redeemed themselves certainly as a live act because I heard that stuff from Inferno Fest or whatever. I'm like, this is completely competent live band. And if you listen to that other live Imperial Ceremony or whatever that thing is called, you can hear the Emperor that I saw live, which was um, like, let's say, delivering the material at about a 70% level. Is that where the show's wearing a white t shirt? Maybe. I think I saw yeah. where he's wearing like a white t-shirt and, and yeah, he's got a shaved head and he's wearing a white, a white t-shirt. Yeah. That's the Imperial live ceremony album. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not, that was one I listened to once when it came out. And then I think, you know, more than a decade passed before I spun it again. I'm like, maybe this is better than I remember. And I listened and said, Nope. But then I got that Inferno thing. Like, Oh wow. This is completely competent. This is a real, they're really on top of this stuff. Yeah, definitely recommend you checking them out if they ever roll through your area or whatnot. So definitely a great performance. One of the best that I've seen, uh, I would say like right when uh, David Vincent got back with Morbid Angel, 
I saw them play in Tampa and I was like right up front in the middle. And, you know, Trey was to my right and David Vincent was right in front of me. And that was the freaking show. I loved it. Um, so like Emperor and that Morbid Angel lineup, it was like those are the two best shows for metal that I've seen. Yeah, those are. I, I saw I saw Morbid Angel on that tour as well. It was nice. Uh, it was you know I hadn't seen them. I hadn't seen them with uh, with David Vincent because the first time I saw them was uh, live was I think on the Formulas tour. Like I, it was like the big. It's like oh, they've returned to form. Did they have Everyone the fans going, blowing their hair? What? Um, I, I, no, I don't remember. I, I saw them at a, I don't remember that being the case. But it was, uh, you know, at the time, people just thought it was a triumph because certainly, you know, like back then, it was everyone relentlessly shitting on domination, which um, <laughs> obviously an, an opinion I, I, I never shared, though it wasn't my favorite then. For a lot, like, a testament to the quality of their work is that a bunch of these at different times have been my favorite. Like there was a time I would have ranked covenant, um, as the best. And at a time when I would have ranked blessed are the sick, but I've landed on the, the three as my favorites for, for a while now. These are, these are the ones that, that land for me. Did you guys see any other shows of, of note in the, in the, in the past year? Uh, I saw uh, graveland and, uh, Finland, but, uh, um, oh. I didn't, yeah. know that they, I didn't know that they played live. They, they just recently started doing it like five years ago. And it's it's really strange. Like Rob Darkin, he has all these like session live guys. And he just does vocals. Right. But at Steel Fest, he had the session guys sign autographs because he doesn't know English that well. And he didn't want to talk to people. So he had the session members sign autographs. I thought that was very strange. But uh, um, it was pretty solid. <laughs> but they used a lot of... Uh, um, pre-recorded keyboard stuff you know the choirs and all that it it just really seemed kind of fake not having someone actually play that um you know just having that backing track which was louder than the guitars so um that was kind of odd but i i I dug it um um and uh the rest of my time in finland i was hanging out with marco like uh we went to the helsinki philharmonic to see shostakovich for instance i had Marco Leho from Beherit on one side of me and Yarno from Serpent Ascending and Desecracy on my other side. And we watched like a Mahler piece and then we we're mainly there for the Shostakovich. Um, but uh, I do have a great recommendation for you before we wrap up today. I know Shelly has to go to bed soon. It's really late there. But uh, um, I noticed there's a lot of bolt thrower on your uh, favorite albums. And I think you'll really yeah. love Desecracy. Um, Desecracy is really like I, a, I got it. I got it last week, and I really do like it. Oh, you're ahead of me. So you already got into yeah. Desecracy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is that is that is that is a, that is a good recommendation. Yeah, is this a dude from like Slugathor or something? Yeah, yeah, something Yarna. Else, right? Yeah, Yarna. And then, well, uh, Desecracy now is just Tommy. Um, he's doing it as a solo project, but uh, he's still really good friends with Yarno. So Yarno is on, I think, the first five albums. But the the album I would really recommend to you is uh, the Doom Skeptron to start out with. But it sounds like he already got to them. Oh, okay. Before. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I I enjoy I enjoy this one, and we'll and we'll go uh, and we'll go deeper deeper with that. But. Um, Cool. Yeah, let's uh, let's 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 let let's let the let's let Shelly Shelly heal up and, and get some sleep. Uh, and and I got a and I got my uh, and I got my data to, to get to now that I'm awake. Yes, sir. Um, oh, and oh. Uh, fun 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 catching up. 
And, uh, yeah, I, uh, enjoyable chatting about metals and having some, uh, some, uh, some cordial disagreements <laughs> and, uh, and, and, some, and, and some, well, I mean, this is, this is the thing, like, you know why you like the ones that you like. And I like, it isn't, you know, but, but, uh, with, with this sort of thing, if everyone is like, yeah, I'm like, I, I can go through the album and tell you the songs that don't work for me and why they don't work for me. Yeah. So it, 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 I arrive at these with like, there's a thoughtful reason I'm there, but yeah, I know like putting domination and gateway this year, one and two more with angel, not, you know, not the most, not the most common choice, but Yarno from Desecracy likes uh, domination too. And I gave him Koopa for that. But, uh, um, but anyway, well, for me, yeah. it's always, it's not what you like, but why you like it. I think that's more important. If oh, for you can sure. explain your reasons, then, and I can explain my reasons to you, I think that's more important than us liking the same albums. So. Oh, yeah. Oh. Everyone has different perspectives, and we can we can reach a common ground somewhere. So, um, But uh, definitely check out Craig Zoller's uh, Organisms from an Ancient Cosmos. It is out now through Dark Horse, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It took about, I know it took him thousands of hours to put together, but it only takes about an hour to read. And I do need to warn you that there is some nudity in there. So while you're reading it, you might want to cover your kid's eyes. Um, so um, thank you very much for coming back on the program today. And hopefully it's start of, you know, a good relationship. We can bring you back when your next project's done is again. So uh, thank you, Zoller. My, my pleasure. We can we'll, we'll do something similar. We'll talk a little bit about whatever is the thing I've made. And then it will descend into, uh, you know, metal madness for however long. <laughs> yeah, really, I love, I love chatting about, yeah, I'm, I'm a lifelong metal head and I, and I love chatting. I, I love chatting about this stuff. So Excellent. anyways, have, have, a, uh, have, have a good night uh, and chat with you later. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Sure. My pleasure. Bye.